All right. Happy Tuesday, everyone. And we are back with another Learning Tech Talks, where we are doing way more than exploring the landscape of learning technology. We're talking learning tech. We're talking all things learning, innovation, all this good stuff. Uh, but today we're taking a deviation from some of the more recent conversations because I had a last minute cancellation, which opened up an opportunity based on a conversation Kason and I were having last week. And I said, you know what? We need to have this conversation for the betterment of the industry. And Kason said, sign me up. Here I am. So I am joined by Kason Morris. I, I called you the experienced design extraordinaire in the, in the splash screen, but how would you describe yourself? No, I mean, I, I think that's, that, that's a good way to think about it. I, I mean, I really do care about learning experience at at work uh and and learning right now in in our spaces is truly competitive advantage and and when you think about where we're going forward with it it is all about how you're designing the experiences so i'm, I'm happy to take on the title of the experience design guy because <laughs> that's what i'm thinking about going forward and it, and it has an intersection of all the things you mentioned the technology the content the people the outcomes all that great stuff Okay. Well, then, then my that was that was my creative juices working last minute as I was putting together the show notes. Going, all right, what are, what are we going to do with this here? Um, so we're going to be talking about this transition from instructional design to experience design, and all honestly, as we talked about it last week, this this is a big hairy ball of wax in, in all reality in terms of untangling what that looks like. What does it take to do that? So I don't. I don't know about you, but I don't anticipate we're going to get through all of this in an hour and solve solve one of our industry's largest problems. Do you, do you think, well, how far do you, what your predictions, there's my ice, there's one of my icebreaker questions for you. <laughs> predictions for how far you think we'll get in 57 minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, you're spot on because the whole idea of learning experience design, it's an interdisciplinary design discipline and it, it incorporates several disciplines. So to your point, yeah. there's I don't think we're going to have time to touch on them. And when you think about uh, what I think it is, is it touches on design, it touches on interactive design, it touches on user experience, graphic design, and instructional design, amongst other things. So I say we maybe we maybe unpack maybe one or two of those components. Okay. All right. One yeah, or two. Within, let's within let's say like what thirty three percent. Give or give or take. You give know. Or take. I, I could, Top of mind, I could think of about nine different domains and disciplines that I, I think experience design touches. So I say let's target, let's aim for like three. Okay. Let's let's <laughs> see where two. we go. Let's see where we get. Okay, so to warm things up though, for folks just joining, you and I have have known each other for a while now, but let's let's do a little bit more of an icebreaker on that. And for folks who are watching, listening, feel free to comment and join in on the conversation. But Kason, where are you? today in the world right now you mean like geolocation professional location I'll cover oh wow okay you know you're going deep with this one i'm gonna say your choice <laughs> not not house chooses i'll let you choose how you want to answer that one right well i would say geolocation i am on the east coast uh just outside of philadelphia um from a bigger where i am in the world today is i am trying to solve these wicked problems uh, in, in the workplace learning space around how we can design better experiences to upskill, uh, right skill and, and reskill talent. 
uh, so that that learning is truly a competitive advantage for organizations. And I'm blessed to be able to do this now for one of the biggest CRM companies, if not the biggest on the planet. Uh, and and they, they're doubling down on this idea and, and I love it. And, and I'm happy to put my thought leadership into how that plays out forward for them. All right. All right. And you've got a way cooler setup than I do, by the way. I, I, I have to say, when we talked last week, I'm like, man, I admire that because this, everybody's seen this. It's the same. Although mm -hmm. I have had people notice that Fred over here, he's got a roommate now. So I, I have enhanced enhanced my background. We finally took down the Christmas tree. And so I had to rearrange. <laughs> I had to rearrange a few things in the house. And now I have an extra plant in my office. So other than that, nothing has changed. A um, little bit of background for folks who may not know a ton about you. What's been your journey in L&D? So people know, you know, yes, we're talking about experience design, but I yeah. think one of the things that we, that is important about thinking about this is the when, when you talk about this, understanding your background and, and our backgrounds in this does help yeah. to say, okay, well, how do you know what you're even talking about? No, 100%. Um, I, I've spent the last 15 years in the talent and organization performance space for a number of different companies. Um, I've essentially designed and redesigned my career pathways about six times at this point. And that's taken me through the gamut of what talent and org performance means. So working for large consulting firms like Accenture um, and also financial areas like Bank of America, I've run the gamut from thinking about how do you design learning products? How do you deliver those learning products? Uh, how do you train other trainers? Uh, how do you actually deliver learning solutions at scale, like a, like a seminar-based type of program? So the different stops along my career pathway have given me a very, very broad experience around learning in different capacities from, from being the facilitator, the instructional designer, uh, the, the LMS administrator, uh, to now where, where I'm currently the, the strategist and, and orchestrator of sorts, uh, thinking about how do you manage the, the strategy going forward and the governance around that strategy. So it's really, truly a full circle process for me. And um, I love sharing knowledge, insights, and experimenting with new ways to, to help all different types of L&D professionals in, in the spectrum of, of those experiences, all the way from design to delivery to governance to technology. Okay. Well, and I think one of the reasons we connected so well, one of the many, aside, you know, the other one we were talking about was our, our big families and, and choice in vehicles, but um, <laughs> it's also the fact, similar, similarly, you have a background that spans the spectrum of L&D. And I think that, that there is a lot of value. A lot of times when I'm talking to folks who are in L&D, who are looking to kind of grow their career, one of the things I encourage people to do all the time is spend time across the spectrum of it because it does help you understand the complexity of our field. And I think that is one of the challenges that a lot of times our industry struggles with in making some of these big transitions is that if you've, if you've gone too far down the T and haven't spread out across the top, yep. it does limit your ability to say, okay, you know, let's just is in this example, well, we want to move from ID to experience design. Okay. But if you only understand one vertical in L and D it's hard to understand all the intricacies of the broader experience and how do you pull all those things together? 
to actually do that. So I think, you know, I have tremendous respect for the fact that you do have that diversity and background of, of the space and do that, which we're going to talk about why that matters, because if you don't have it, it's not that you can't make this jump. And I think that's one of the things that in some conversations I've had, people can feel discouraged and go, well, I don't have that. So does that mean I need to wait until I go across the whole T to do it? And the answer is no, you're just going to approach it differently than if you did. And hopefully over time, build, build that expansion. Yep. I know. I, uh, I agree. Agree. Um, and, and a point you make around, around the T that's something that I think I help people take away is thinking about that T design. Uh, in relation to their own skill building to to start to expand their horizons into where they want to go in the learning space. So I just yeah. wanted to call that out. No, which I think is a good part of this whole, what's the journey that you're on? Because this does tie to a bunch of other things. And actually, I think we're, 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 we're all start. I've got one question for you because I'd love to hear your answer to this. But this conversation is exceptionally timely due to, I don't know if you caught LinkedIn's latest learning workplace report, but one of the chunks in there some research from Red Thread came out on the skills people, you know, in L and D see they need to to move into the future. Which I think there's a lot of mixed opinions on this. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating about looking at the diversity of that map is, like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things in there, and understanding how to navigate that can be really overwhelming. Which leads to my question for you. When you think about experience design, you, you said there's like nine things that come to mind, but how do you, how do you define it? Because I will tell you in some of the conversations I've had with folks in our field, when I say we're trying to move to experience design, mm -hmm. you can almost see this. I, I think I know what you mean, but I'm not sure I a hundred percent know that I'm thinking about it the same way you do. So how do you think about it? just to be crystal clear. So make sure we're aligned how we're talking yeah. about it. Yeah, no, 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 more, more than fair. I, I think if you really even just break down the word, if you deconstruct it a little bit, it can help you frame it in the right way. Um, when you think of learning, I, I think of the, the science side of things, um, understanding more of the traditional disciplines, educational expertise, training, yep. instructional design. Um, then you think of, I think of experience in the center of of that so it's it's literally like you know thinking about the the human element of what what's the environment like like what are the outcomes yeah. about like what are you trying to to achieve in relation to the actual experience and then i think of the tail end of design uh and that kind of taps into more of the traditional or more creative types of design thinking um, if you want to put that in a learning context, that's like, inter, you know, you can think of game design or graphic design. Uh, you think of user experience. That, that's what people yeah. typically think of when you think of, of design. So when I think when you break down the three words, you know, this space is is an amalgam of those three ideas. But in the middle of it, there are two what I would say verticals. There's a human centricity around it. So you're thinking about the person in relation to that experience. And then the other end is you may be thinking about a goal. So it's like, what goal are you trying to achieve in that, in that orientation? And, and that's the intersection that I, that I think uh, many people struggle with because when coming from the instructional design space and thinking about you know, the, the, the scientific methods and the different methodologies that, that are in place, often it's, it's very process-oriented, very goal-oriented. 
And when you think of the design side of learning experience design, uh, this is where you're talking about more creativity, more understanding the, the human side of things and how that threads into the experience. So that's, that's how I would define it. Um, and I think there, to the point that you made, there's a bunch of pathways within that continuum, but I don't think you can, I separated the terms to help articulate, yeah. you know, considerations for each, but when you bring them together, it, it does create a, a net new discipline um, that, that I think we're all trying to figure out uh, and, and define in a, in a comprehensive way. Uh, and, and I think this is bleeding edge. If, if you're asking me personally, I, I think, well, so we, we can, we can, we can debate a little bit, but I think it's, it's also kind of a combination of, we may be saying the same thing differently. Cause I think mm -hmm. for our industry, for sure, this is newer territory for us. And to me, I, I look at the roots of this a lot of times go back to the connections we have to academia yep. and how so often what we think of when we think of learning is we're thinking about education. Our, our ties are to education, which which leads to content and, and things like that, instead of what is the actual end user's experience and not just experience of our stuff. Yep. Because again, if you're a college and you're saying, well, what's the user experience? You're thinking of it within the realm of, well, when they come here, what's that user experience? In corporate learning and development, it's like, well, you can't think about it that way because that's not the experience of the person. They're not separating their world into this educational space. We actually need to think about where are they and what are they doing? And I think that's where sometimes I see things fall short because we'll end up constructing a different experience, but it's a different experience within the confines of how we've historically boxed things anyway. So it's like, well, it's a slightly different content experience or we I, improve the user experience, but it's still our learning experience disconnected from their actual human experience. I, I agree. And and just to bring it together so we're, we're aligned, to make Which it simple, are, right? I yeah. think it's like, if you're going to use an analogy, it's like comparing the scientist to the artist. You know, the, the traditional box is the scientist and that structure that we are trying, we often try to force fit, you know, design and experience into. But what you're speaking to is the idea of, of when I think of human experience design, it's like yep. the artist, it's like creative, understanding the context around the actual person and how that influences the approach that um, to, to the learning outcomes. So, yeah. Well, and Kim, Kim brought up a really good point, which, which is, I think speaking to our need to pivot and actually in many ways set the tone for even education. Because if you look at the education space, I still have a lot of friends from my K-12 days in, in K-12 and K-20 education. And the whole education industry is recognizing that, hey, maybe we need to think differently about this because we haven't necessarily been experienced designers. We've been education designers. And now we're recognizing that the lines between education, learning, and life are, are in many ways arbitrary. It's yep. life is learning. Learning is life. Life is, or work is learning. Learning is work. So I think, I think what we're on to, to your point of kind of cutting edge, it's like, well, it's a change that needs to happen, not just for the sake of our industry, but for the way we approach learning as a whole, because they aren't disconnected. 
Agreed. Um, I mean, the only constant in in the world that we're in today truly is change, uh, and and the traditional systems are are don't they're a bit more structured and they don't allow for the dexterity that's I think needed today to really move forward. And and it's a it's a total reframe of of all industries around around this idea of how we educate and how we learn in in every yeah. context of life. So, so on this topic, because when we were talking about this last week, I think one of the challenges we both were just digging into were some of the challenges that are, are creating sticking points for this, whether yeah. it's with people who are, you know, personally doing ID work, looking to say, hey, I want to focus more on, on XD or leaders going, I'd like to move my organization more from a ID company an education shop to an experience shop. And it's, while it'd be great if we could flip a light switch and change, you know, job titles and go, hey, we just made everybody experienced designers instead of instructional designers. Yeah. Da-da. It doesn't work that way. So I'm curious from your experience, what have been and, and we'll kind of re-unpack what we talked about last week, but let's revisit some of the things that you see as barriers to people getting into this and and maybe people who go, yeah, we want to do this. And then they go and they go, this is harder than I thought. What are those things that you're finding people run into? I, I think what you talked about um, overall is that it's it's a big change management effort. It is. Uh, when you when you think about the, the mindset of the organization and the mindset of the individual, because, you know, uh, the, at the organization level, it says, yes, we want this, but there may not be the infrastructure uh, to execute uh, against it. Uh, from the individual, someone who's trying to make that shift, I think it really starts to what we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation is your perspective. You need to think about, you know, what learning is now at work. And, and that whole comparing the scientist to the artist really fits there. And then from that point, once you make that mental shift, you start thinking about, you know, your skills, uh, your methods, and then the tools that you essentially use to actually deliver that experience. And this also apply, just coming full circle, applies back to the organizational context, is once you're able to make that mental shift in the org context, now you have to think about, well, do we have the skills on deck to, yeah. to actually do this work? Do we have the methods in place to support it? Do we have the tools available to execute it? That's how, that's how I kind of look at it. I look at it, it's the same wicked problems, macro level, org brain, micro level, individual person. Well, and, and I think this is where the change on this, um, it, it, it requires effort on all levels. And I think that's one of the other things. This is not something that, you know, if you're an instructional designer going, I want to do this, and you're in an organization that is not rowing this direction, it's going to be it's going to be really really difficult to do because you need the support of your leadership team to say yeah because i can tell you from experience there's a lot of air cover that i have to lay down to make sure that i create space and opportunity for ids to be able to do this because i mean the first time you go to a stakeholder who came and said i want this which is instructional I want some training and you go, we're going to think more holistically about the end user experience. And we want to think about where they are, what are they not doing that we want them to do and why aren't they doing it? And what are the little 
levers and buttons that we need to nudge to get them to do that. I can just tell you, sometimes there may be the initial, okay, I'm intrigued. But a lot of times there's the, I, that's not what I asked for. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, not easy and and if if you're just trying to plow that road ahead by yourself, that is a tough road to go. I I definitely agree. Uh it's it, I think about it as relation to to agency uh for designers to to have that that permission to be more consultative and really take the request from the client and and truly start to utilize those skills to think about the experiences and the outcomes and and to your point it sounds great, but the the executing part of it can be very very challenging when you have pressures from client, pressure in a system that maybe doesn't support that idea. Yeah. Um, you know, so you so by default you wind up deferring to order taking uh, versus truly executing and innovating on the experience and the outcome that you look to drive from a learning point of view. Yeah. Well, and and Kim Kim brought this up, and I think I'll I'll I'm curious how how you've kind of progressed with this. But this whole we talk a lot about we need to move away from being order takers, and, mm -hmm. and I get it, and I agree with it. But I think sometimes where the rubber meets the road is: Are you actually building the skills and laying the foundation and process to do that? Because if you're not, you're going to end up an order taker. And saying I don't want to be an order taker doesn't make you not an order taker. And I think for me personally, one of the first steps in any org that I've been in when we've gone on this journey, the first thing is in order to create the space to do experience design, we have to think like a consultant and we have to get them to stop coming to us with solutions. And when they do walk them backwards to what are we trying to solve? Like, let's just talk about that. Because if you don't create that space, you're going to end up in making a slightly different iteration of the order that was delivered. You might get them to take the cheese off their cheeseburger or or do pepper jack instead of cheddar, but you're still making a cheeseburger. If if at the end of the day you haven't created process to say go back and go, what do you actually what are you actually hungry for? Like let's talk about what you're hungry for so we can figure out what do you need to eat and then let me design something that will actually satisfy what you're trying to do. I I very much agree with you. It's the idea of um I align it to the idea of trying to to solve for this symptom versus really getting to the problem. Yeah. Uh, and and often oftentimes, and you are spot on in in your logic around you have to dial it back. And this is another uh, sort of interdisciplinary recommendation when I think about the learning design design space. You have to tap into sales. You have to tap into marketing because uh, when you think about those that logic from from like a selling perspective. Oftentimes, the best salespeople are people who can listen to their customers and reframe the problem and really dig into that problem and then align the solution to what they can deliver on successfully. And, and that's something that I think uh, is a missing piece in particularly the, the learning and development industry at scale. Yeah. Well, and Boss actually mentioned that a little bit earlier. He talked about the mm -hmm. fact that XD does require that wrapper and emphasis on the marketing layer, which which is a key part of this because that is part of that consultative piece is you're almost in many ways selling back and helping them see what it, hang on, I'm, I'm reframing what I thought I heard you say. You came to me and you said you want training on this. Let's, let's back that up 
and talk about what that is. And now let me reframe what I thought I heard you say. And is that correct? And actually nailing that down and then selling this whole vision of, well, what if we could get you there? What if we could accomplish this type of a thing? And I think sometimes that's going back to this red thread research that came out, you know, marketing was this bubble on the chart. I sometimes see that taken out of context where people go, we need to be better marketers. And that translates to, you know, sending more communications about what we do. And, and it's like, I think you're missing the mark on what we mean when we say we need to think more like marketers when it comes to these things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is spot, spot on. And you're borrowing from the the disciplines. You're, you're understanding the, the cycle. So I say like marketing sales, consulting, being able to do the critical thinking, the analytical skills, like all those things in the context of educating the client so that you can identify the proper like problem statement. And then that leads, I think, more often than not to more diverse and innovative outcomes that are aligned to like, you know, the experience space that we're talking about. Okay. Well, and I, and I think it goes back to this whole flavor of just like when the pandemic hit, if all you're doing is taking your what you were doing before and tossing it into Zoom, it's not going to work well. If yep. you go back to L&D and say, hey, we need to build out some of our marketing capability because we need to move more towards an experience design mindset. And you go, let's copy and paste what marketing does into learning. To, to your point, it's not going to translate because it's like, well, you actually need to critically think through the application of that and say, where do we apply this? How do we apply it? Because it's not just about setting up a marketing function within learning to broadcast your message and create a brand around what you're doing from an L&D standpoint. That's not the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think people tend to look at all these different things in a surface level construct. And this is, this is one of my big challenges to when I think of like the learning space and, and learning designers, I'm like, for lack of better wording, I think some of the elements of creativity and curiosity, sometimes through the cycles of, of delivering for clients, it gets beat out of you. So then it's like, <laughs> yeah, we talked you, about that. <laughs> when you, when you come back to the ask around what we're, what we're discussing, it's, it's genuinely taking a bit of a retrospective and a reflection on yourself and saying, okay, if I were thinking about my my own brand or or learning and development as a as a capability, and what skills that it that it needs, like you have to apply this process to yourself. That that's basically what I'm getting at yeah. at the end of the day, and then reflect that outward to educate your 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 customer base, uh, and then that education that buy in from the customer eventually will lead to some kind of change management processes. And over time, it's very iterative. It, it, like you said, it, it'll never it'll never quite be the light switch, but I think it starts from within, and then yeah. you educate the the um the customer from there. Well, and this goes back to where we were talking about the fact that this is this is an all hands on deck exercise. It, it really is because the uh, one team member can't do it alone. Because to your point, <laughs> it gets beat out of you. I, I know a lot of IDs that have had big dreams to go down this path and they've been kicked in the teeth and curb stomped so many times that it just kind of goes to a, I mean, I just don't even know if I have it in me anymore. I'm fine being, I'm fine being a storyline shop because it's easier. And I, and I can say from my own experience at a senior leader level, 
it would be much easier to run an L&D org as an order taker shop than it is to be an experience organization. It, it is much easier to go in and go find whatever you want. Let's just make it and let's just do it than to actually walk stakeholders back, defend kind of the new approach, all this stuff. And I think that's one of the things that hopefully anybody watching and listening, regardless of, of where you are, is it's, it's really about how do you band together as an L&D team and say, how do we work together to make this work? And what are the different roles, responsibilities, and capabilities that we have? But I am curious to this, because to that point of, in some cases, it's been beat out of folks. In some cases, it's been either so long, or it's the only thing you've ever known that, you know, when you think about learning, a lot of this also ties back to psychology and human psychology. And that, again, yeah. your point about having to look in the mirror we have to do this to ourselves just as much as we do to the org or we're going to completely miss it. How, how have you helped folks work through that identity crisis? Cause I will say personally on top of the whole, we got to build the consulting skills to create space for this. Mm -hmm. That identity crisis can almost be an Achilles heel for an L and D organization where you go, wait a minute, but this is what I've always been and what I've always done. And is what you're telling me that the future that is ahead doesn't include me or doesn't need me. And that can be a very psychologically unsafe place for folks to have some of those feelings. Yeah. Um, and to your, to your point, this, this actually ties into this idea of, of capability. Um, when you think about, you know, you as learning designers, as discipline experts, domain experts, you, you may have um, expertise and competence in certain areas. And the way I tend to help others around this idea is showing the connection to current competence to where you are uh, and bridging that to where the industry space or the opportunities within the org can go. Uh, and, and this goes back to this idea that I framed earlier where change is the only constant. And, and that's something that I, I implore everyone to think about, even agnostic of, of the learning uh, design and learning industry space, is that we have to always continually grow and evolve. And that's what creates your competitive advantage. So previously, there may have been some safety in, in being a deep expert in a, in a particular space, but the utility and the shelf life of those kinds of skills uh, over time are eroding. And, and what I coach yeah. people and orgs to think about is what are those skills that are, are durable, but also in demand so that they have a, a longer shelf life and utility and therefore in, create some level of um, security for, for you. Now, there are skills that are in demand, but are also perishable, meaning they may have a short shelf life. So you have to understand that mix. And then once folks get that, that's where the light bulb kind of happens. And then you start designing your way forward and thinking about your, your skill building in the context of your work or whatever it is you're trying to achieve in that way, based on what you want and based on what, what you need to do in order to be successful. Well, and this is, I, I love where you're going with this because this ties into the capability piece, which I want to, which I want to claw back a little bit more. Cause I think this is, We've talked a little bit about the consulting piece, but I think the the how on the skill or capability piece is even more critical because even the consulting, you can say, well, we need to be better consultants. Like, okay, how? How do, how do we even build that capability? But to your point, it's even just helping disconnect 
and, and the durable perishable skills, I think is an important one because helping people associate themselves more with those durable skills and recognizing the perishable skills are ones they need to have, but they need to have with an open hand and say, I need to pick this up, but at some point it's not going to be relevant, but the durable skill that actually powered that perishable skill still will, I'll just have to apply it in a slightly different way. And, and where I see this fall apart and it just, I don't want to say breaks my heart because that doesn't really sound like a phrase that I would use. But but again, I just think in some of the explorations as, as over the years I've made this journey with design teams, is there are times where I'll even, and, I, and this has nothing to do with articulate, but where I've said as I was getting to know candidates, how would you feel if we never used articulate again? And watching people drop out of candidacy over the idea of not using a tool. And I go, you believe your identity is wrapped in your skills using a tool instead of recognizing your value is actually in the durable skills that makes you good at using that tool, which can be applied to any tool. And I think that's what we're talking about in this capability is how do we help people get beneath the surface and unpack what are those actual capabilities underneath it all? Because if you can start to identify that, that's where you can unlock and, and start to free people from these psychological and identity crises that actually prevent them from moving. Yeah, I know you, you've said so much with that. And this is what I am, I am looking and aiming to solve for. I think of capability building as kind of an equation um, and, and I'll, I'll represent it in like a, a few swim lanes where there is um personal competency. So there are certain skills that you need to, to develop on a human level, uh, like resilience, learning dexterity, analytical thinking, things that these are examples of very durable skills that will attach to you as a human uh, and will yes. help you in the, in the context of the work that you're doing. Then there are what I would call uh, business capabilities. So there, there's an acumen that you need to have in relation to understanding the, the business. You can include selling in that. You can include negotiation. You can include different types of skills, but it tends to have uh, a business context, like broad business context, and then a more specific business context, depending on the industry that you're in. Um, then I would say the third capability is probably more, or, or competency is more around uh, the technical competencies. So that's like the tools you know, the things that you kind of need to do to do the job. So there are certain things that kind of fall into that bucket that may have utility now, but they may be perishable because jobs change, roles change, they evolve. Uh, yep. And when you string all those pieces together, that essentially equals what I would call organizational capability. Because if you're dialed in on all three of those swim lanes, now the org has the ability to produce certain things or to innovate in a certain way. Uh, and, yeah. and what I find in that equation is that there are different levels of, of, of talent, you know, in different places. So what I'm trying to think about when I think about the capability more broadly is how do I create proficiency at scale in those three buckets of personal, of business, of let's call it job and tools so that yeah. the org is always ready for what could potentially be next. 
Well, and, and and I think on those, you know, even Lauren shared a little bit of, of her story where what you're hitting on is exactly related to these kinds of things, like managing and embracing ambiguity as a skill capability, mm-hmm. as a growth area, that's not going anywhere and being more skilled and knowing, okay, how do I navigate environments and situations where the earth is shifting underneath me and I still need to get to destination B, but I might have to change the pathway that I get there really quickly without necessarily changing the destination. That's a skill that regardless of what happens and the half-life of skills and yada, 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 that's not going anywhere. And I think building some of that can be really powerful. But even to your point of the technical, which can be perceived as a, a, a perishable skill, I think even within the technical, I found there's some durable skills underneath this. And, and a good yeah. example of this was, I remember when Flash was going away and and just the panic. I mean, this was early Flash days when yeah. Flash was like the thing. And, and I had folks that I knew who were just panicking about it. But when we started digging underneath the capability of, well, okay, but now you understand layers and timelines and triggers and some of these different elements that's not going to go anywhere. So recognizing that you understand these, might you have to translate that technical skill in a different way? Yes. You might have to learn a new UX. You might have to learn how does that lay out, but that's not going to go anywhere. And by building that skill and being able to quickly adapt to a new technology. And I think that skill of being able to identify what are the consistence, what are the constants and how do I find those constants in something new so I can quickly pivot those are some of those things where you go, okay, well, if you can build that out, you actually can be really successful through some of these very uncertain times. That's a great, a great call out and a great example. Um, I, I would agree, agree with you. Um, I think in the space, people are, are tend to over-index on, on the technical side of, yes. of things. Um, but, but I love the point that you're saying is that that under under those technical skills are bridge skills that allow you to flex and move into the next technology. And those are certainly durable. So that's a great, great example. So, so let me ask you this, and I'm curious in this because one of the other observations and reactions I had to the workplace learning report was the fact that you look at this and I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it was 39 skills across seven categories, which Anybody in our field knows if you go to someone and say, I need you to change 39 things in seven completely distinct areas in your life, (laughs) it's probably not going to go too well for you. Uh, I'm I'm just telling you, spoiler alert, if you decide you set your New Year's resolution to change 39 skills in seven different areas of your life, I have a feeling I'll follow up with you a couple weeks later and you probably aren't on trajectory to hit that target. But I think the point with that is, What's been your experience with actually diversifying and saying, you know what, there are different skill categories within the group and that's okay. Because I think going back to this T-shape, sometimes our tendency as an industry, especially in this ID to XD, one of the challenges I've seen is people struggle to make it because they try and make everybody everything to everyone. And it's okay. Everybody, we're now experienced designers, so you need to be a master consultant on the front end. You need to be an extraordinary learning strategist and think about the whole experience. You need to be mm-hmm. deep in the technical and know how to design all these different elements. You need to deploy them all, measure them. like, And it yeah. leaves, again, it's the 39 skills across seven categories where people go, uh, 
I can't. I physically can't. But I think there are some that do span. And I'm curious your take on where have you seen the span and where have you said, "Ah, I think we need to break apart and go deep? I think it depends on um, one major dependency is on size, scale, and appetite of an organization. So, So that being said, you know, oftentimes learning, learning development capabilities are, are underfunded, you know, especially pre-COVID. So True. you're a small team. And as a result, you know, you're wearing many different hats. You're, you're under, you have to span that spectrum in order to stand up that, that particular thing that you're trying to, to address. So you, you become very wide in, in that point of view. Um, I think depending on the scale of the, the organization, um, my personal opinion is that what you're trying to produce and if, and if as an organization, people are trying to, the, the organization is trying to innovate on experience types, I would say you have a heart, which is the, the experienced designer, which is think of it. If you're taking an HR sort of perspective is like the generalist who is good enough at a lot of different things to be really dangerous. MacGyver. Yep. <laughs> And then you have what I would call um there there are two two other swim lanes which you have the specialist. So the specialist is then the person like like take an idea like a uh, game design or interaction design. You know you're not going to have every learning experience designer really really good at that, and it's a capability that you may need because you know going forward in your strategy, hey we're gonna we're gonna do more gamification, uh, we want to do more of those kinds of things. So then you may have those specialist areas. Uh, and then I think the front end that's really important, which aligns more to the the business context and business capability, is that kind of project management, product ownership, like someone who basically leads and connects the dots and gets sticky in relation to creating the synergies between what the client needs and what the designers are actually doing to, to produce. So at scale, you kind of need, I think, at minimum, those three big buckets. And when you think about capability building, if you have a large enough organization, it then gives an opportunity for people who have design expertise to 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 kind of cascade across different disciplines or specialize in a certain in a certain area. So it gives them a playground. It's like, hey, I'm good at instructional design, but I want to work more on my project management and my stakeholder management. There's a pathway there. Oh, I'm really, you know, I really want to get into, I'm a generalist, but I really want to get into game design. There's a specialization there. So that's how I try to look at it. But it has to be, I say all this to say that it has to be aligned to the strategy of the organization and and the the business. Because some companies don't need all that, don't want all of that. So um, I, I think depending, like putting on my leader hat, it's like in, in yeah. having built L&D capabilities for different orgs, you kind of have to, to calibrate and audit where the company is and then right size that role strategy for what they're trying to do right now. And then go I back. love the point you brought. Th- I, I love the point that you made on this because I think sometimes there's this tendency and we have it, we have it in a lot of different areas where we go, what should be the right org design? And there's not a universal answer to what that is. I mean, for me in, in orgs where I've had an ideal setup, I have seven different capabilities 
built out where I go, okay. And it's, it's more around product management. I'm thinking about it more as product design because I came from the software world. So I think about product and how do we do, you know, go through that process and manage it. And I've found that to work really well. But to your point, some orgs either don't have the appetite for all of that. They may not be there from a maturity standpoint. I, I've, I've worked with orgs before and advised orgs where they've said, we really need an analytics team. And I'm like, what would they analyze? I mean, are you at a state of maturity where they would have anything to analyze at this point yet? And if not, you're going to have some really bored analytics people going, what, what, what do you have me doing? And I think that's a part that you know goes back to leaders having kind of a recognition of where are you on this journey and what is the attitude and appetite of your organization? Because you can say, well, I want to build this dream state with L&D, but you also have to meet the organization where they are while building the pathway forward. I think the other thing, though, and and Lauren brought this up, um, and and I think leaders have a big role in this, is taking the time to get to know the people in your team and what do they really excel at. And this this is work. This is work that has to happen where we can kind of go, well, they're you know they're learning people. No. No, because even within learning, there are people that really are passionate about certain elements of this. And, and I've worked with some small orgs that go, well, we only have a handful of people. We can't build out a specialty org. Maybe not, but I guarantee you can get to know those individuals and figure out what are their strengths? What are the things that they do really well? So you can start to distribute the work knowing that T-scale and going, well, you know, we're, we're going to create a little bit more of a fluid organization than a nice you know, swim laned organization because we don't have the the structure, infrastructure to support that. But that takes time. And that again goes back to this psychological. A lot of times you got to help people understand what is it you really like doing? Because I think we've been trained to go, well, I, I'm 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 good at and I love everything. Yep. No, no, um, you don't. And that's okay. <laughs> I, I would say to your to to piggybacking off your point. Uh, one thing to think about in relation to that is capacity planning. So one way you can give someone that opportunity is there's a certain amount of capacity that's needed to do the table stakes work that yep. the organization has. But as you get to know your resources and their interests, and you think about, to your point, around the maturity of where the organization is and where you want, want it to go, then as a leader and, and within that organization, you can then start to be strategic in affording your talent those opportunities um, with you know capacity earmarked to do special projects or things that are more aligned to building those additional skills both serving them profession personally and professionally but then also in some way you know serving the business and once yeah. you lay out that narrative I think I think it makes it very very fruitful because you may have one of the challenges I see with many designers is that they're over-indexed for a certain kind of work that isn't isn't aligned to the things that are meaningful for them. And what you want to do is when you think about the world that we're in today with talent and attrition and all those other challenges, um, you know, engagement really matters. And and research supports the idea that when people feel like they have engagement and they have pathways for growth, that they stay almost two and a half times longer than they would in, in, in uh, a traditional organization. And that's not specific to L&D. That's just no. more of an, an aggregate uh, point of view. So 
regardless of, of who you're talking about or who you're profiling, if you start to think about that in that way of capacity, I think it could be very, very powerful um, for, for keeping people engaged and having them do meaningful work in different contexts. Yeah. And, and and that's that's such an important point in the sustainability of this because this is what helps the sticky factor of where you're going because this stuff takes time. So if somebody's watching or listening going, okay, so we want to move from an ID to an XD organization and we'd like to do it by Q2 2022. I I mean, it's not going to happen. It's just, it's it's realistically not. So thinking, playing the long game of how do we actually build the sticky factor so that people are around long enough to make it through this change. And I think the other part, the flip side of that coin is there are going to be times, and, and this is a message out to leaders, there are going to be times that in that planning, you're going to say, this is a capability that doesn't exist here. And you may have to be honest and transparent with people that this isn't a capability that we're going to be pursuing in the future. And, and that's okay if that's really the path you want to take, but that path doesn't exist here. So let's help figure out where that path exists. And maybe you have opportunity to transition in a different path here. Yeah. And maybe that transition is somewhere else. Because I think again, of some of the things where you might say, well, okay, in a, in a ideal world, would it be great if you had, you know, a role that did nothing but this? Well, Maybe, and maybe you have somebody on the team that loves doing nothing but that, mm -hmm. and that's what they want to do 24 hours a day, but you don't have that capacity and you don't know that that's not on the roadmap for this foreseeable future. Making it up or trying to make it happen is not doing you a favor and it's not doing your team a favor. And I think the other thing Kim brought up here that, that I think is a really good thing is for leaders to think about the next generation of these leaders. And that's where I think this talk and, and what we're talking about here this is something that can be helpful. And I think based on our conversation, this is why we get really excited about this is helping the next generation of senior leaders think about this stuff before they're there so that yep. they're not trying to figure this out once they're there and say, how do you plan for this as part of your leadership journey instead of waiting till you're sitting in the chair going, what did I just walk into? No, I I agree. You, you made so many valid points and what I what I want to emphasize and and um kind of revisit to your point around you know it's okay if sometimes your talent transitions out is you have to think about the employee life cycle and where where the maturity of the organization is going because the value here as a leader is is even if there isn't a fit for them if you're supporting them and helping them through and being, you know, transparent in, in that articulation of where the business is going, the goal with every employee from my point of view is that you get them, you skill them, and then they leave as fans. Because, yeah. when, they, because when they leave as fans and advocates, that's the best recruiting you could ever get for the things that you're trying to do. If you're trying to build a world-class organization, agnostic of industry that you're in, you have to think about that life cycle. Um, so it's not about keeping someone there because you like them or you want them to be there or making <laughs> something up for them. It's yeah. about supporting them through their journey and knowing and understanding where their off ramp is and having them see that you were a part of that process so that it comes back full circle for you. Well, and what's funny about that is that what what we're talking about right there is experience design in our own house. Mm 
yep. when you really think about it, because we're thinking about what is the experience of the employees on your own team? You know, if you're artificially trying to make a job that is not a good fit for someone or that their skills just don't fit the mold, but you're trying to mask it with, you know, artificial things that make it seem bearable, it's still a terrible user experience. It's still a terrible employee experience. And no matter what you do, you're not going to change that. And so recognizing, okay, if we're really going to be experienced designers, we need to model this in our own house in terms of let's think about where our employees are. What is their experience today? What does it look like in our org? And is it in our org? Because to your point, some of the best super fans that I've had that have been part of my teams have gone on to do other things. And that's been fine because we've we've been on that journey together and we've said, all right, let's figure out what this is. They have set up the best transition plans. They've sent the best referrals to the teams. They've been the biggest advocates. And half the time they've been boomerang employees that have ended up coming back going, once that capability was there, well, what was the first phone I picked up? And not that I've ever picked up a phone in years, but the point is, right, who's the person that I send a volley message to or text to to go, hey, would you, I have that capability that I know you're a rock star at. I know you went and did this, but now time is now. And it comes back. And I think sometimes that fear of doing that limits us from actually thinking about the employee experience in our own house. Yep. No, spot, spot on. Um, just to kind of wrap up that lad, the other piece of the comment that you mentioned, when you think about um, orgs moving forward and, and how to start to embed these ideas, I do think it anchors around four big spaces. It's that perspective. So what we've honed in on is changing the perspective uh, around, you know, how you approach on yourself as a designer from, so to move from an ID to, to experience design, you have to change your perspective of what, what that means. Uh, organizationally, that's relevant too. And then you start to index the skills. So it's like, okay, if I'm moving into this experience space, what skills do I have right now? What skills can I bridge to build on what I need next? Uh, and then I would say you would think about then the methods that you use to actually facilitate quality experience design process. And we don't have time to kind of unpack that, but it's like, you know, you got to think about the, the infrastructure in the org and what processes and all the things that we talked about where there's that sense of readiness. And then the back end of it for me is then the tools. What are the, what's the hammer and the nail and the different things that you're using? Is it the articulate? Is it the storyline? Is it the domino? Is it this thing? Is it that thing? Because yeah. those tools allow you a certain amount of range to actually, you know, bring the experience to, to life. So the tool doesn't define the experience, but the tool can no. restrict it depending on what it is. Well, and I think to your... So I don't I don't know how we did. We'll we'll let people give us a rating on on our percentage, what our predictions were, how far, <laughs> whether our number and predictions were right. But I love where you wrapped on this because I think the the kind of closing thought on my end on this is that your point of these categories is so important. And one of the callouts that I would make to that that sometimes I get questions about, and and even when I talk about this is, don't think about them as linear. Because I think that's one of the mistakes sometimes folks make. Now, now on the flip side, to your point about tools, do we sometimes have a tendency to go, if we get this tool, then we're going to be experienced designers because it's an experienced design tool. 
And then we force fit, <laughs> we force fit our people and our process and all this other stuff into this tool. And then people go, wow, this isn't really experience design at all. But I think this other piece is that doesn't mean you can't do them in parallel or stagger or approach and really identify where do the biggest gaps exist. And maybe we pursue a couple of things at the same time, or we experiment with some while we're doing it. We don't have to follow this lockstep process of, okay, so you're saying we have to re-engineer all our process first and don't touch a tool to, no, you might touch a tool to experiment to see how does that affect your process. I mean, you might do these things together, but I think your categories really help solidify how to think about it. I think the last thing that I would add to this is when you think about experience design, <laughs> you're not the person we're designing for. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean you, but I mean, I think that look in the yeah. mirror of like constantly reminding yourself, this isn't for you. So stop thinking about it that way, because until you actually make that break and go, oh yeah, it's not about my experience. It's about their experience. You will continue to design for your experience which yeah. isn't the experience of your audience. And, and you're basically going to never achieve what you're hoping to. No, that's, that's a great way to wrap, wrap it up. And, you, and if you even take those, those four buckets to your point around the, the end user persona, it's like, what are their skills? What are the <laughs> right. tools they use? What's their perspective? Yes. And allow that to influence the, the output. So, yeah. I love it. Well, we could just keep this thing going and, and just keep rolling, but we've got other meetings to attend to and lots of other things going on. So I'm going to, I'm going to call it for all of you watching. I hope this was helpful because again, the goal is to help you think about how do you get started on this journey? How do you begin going here? What are some of the things you can do? I have a sneaking suspicion. This will not be our last conversation based on other things we've talked about. So you will be back. We'll be talking about this and more in the future. But um, I just really appreciate your time with especially the new role and everything you have going on, especially the last minute ask. Um, and I hope everybody got value out of it. Great. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm, I love talking about these topics and I'm always happy to share my knowledge and, and help others. So I, I look forward to, to being invited back and having some updates and, and how I'm thinking about it as, as I move down the road with my own strategy. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, everybody, and have a wonderful week.